right, well, thank you, Laura. Salt and light, it is good to be with you guys. I, we have been praying, Restore Church. I personally have been praying for you and thinking about you guys often, so it's good to be here and see you all in action. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but your initials are SNL. So I've had fun all week telling my friends that I'm going to be a guest on SNL this week, and um, they didn't believe me. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, prayer. We thank you for the stories that we hear of, of you working through your spirit in the lives of your saints and in the lives of those who don't yet know you. And we just pray, God, as we listen to and we continue in this story, the grand meta narrative of the Bible, I pray that you would um, allow us to see our own lives in that story. Lord, that we could find meaning and purpose in this story that's unfolding that you have put before us, you have planned, and we have seen some of it already happen, and we continue to wait to see the rest of it unfold, but we trust that it is all in the hands of a good father. So uh, give us this time right now, Lord, that would be one that would sanctify us and deepen our understanding and relationship with you, and it would deepen our understanding of your love and your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, um, I, we've kind of done this a little bit today, but you know, this morning at Restore, I preached the same sermon. I just asked everybody, so we'll kind of go through this again, um, just to think of a time in your life when you heard some devastating news. So maybe life was uh, rolling and going in a pretty good direction at one point, and then all of a sudden, you got hit with some really hard news, such as divorce, such as cancer. Um, maybe a misunderstanding with a friend that has ruined that relationship. Maybe it's a child that's been sick and you feel like this parent that is incredibly vulnerable and can't do anything to help the child out. This is a conflict that has occurred in your life. And these conflicts tell us something about who we are. They tell us, number one, that God has designed this whole thing, like you guys, myself, to live in a story. And there is a, a setting, right? There is, there, is a, there is characters in this story. There's a plot. There's conflict. There's something bad that happens that needs to be resolved. And it also tells us, when we think about this, that we all know deep down inside this is not the way that it's supposed to be. We've gotten used to disappointment at some level, but deep down inside of all of us and the kiddos in this room included, we all know that this is not the way that life should be. We know that. That's why we feel so unsettled. That's why we feel angry about it at times. That's why we feel so devastated because the expectation of what is deep inside of our hearts is not aligning to the reality of what we face. And so today, we're going to look at the conflict of all conflicts. The Bible, despite the way that maybe you grew up, if you grew up in the church, reading little bits and pieces of it, um, the fractured stories is what it kind of felt like to me growing up. By the way, I apologize for messing with this thing. I just can't seem to get it right on my oddly shaped ear, so um, just get used to it, I guess. But the Bible is this grand meta-narrative. It tells a story, and so there's 66 books in the Bible. There's over a thousand chapters in the Bible. There's all these different stories, but it is telling one big story, as I'm sure you guys heard Ben talking about 
last Sunday. It's telling us one big story. And for us to begin to understand that story allows us to understand how our story fits in. And when we understand that, we begin to see purpose, we begin to have understanding, we begin to have hope for the things that we're walking through in our own lives. And so what I want to do is I just want to I just want to ask and invite you as we talk to see yourself as a part of a bigger story today. I want to I want to ask that you would trust and believe that this story though ancient and although talking serpents and Um, all kinds of things that we don't typically see in history is in fact history in itself. From the small inconveniences in our daily lives to the life-altering tragedies, there is a brokenness that haunts all of our lives and it must be resolved. And so before we dive in to the conflict, I want to review for just a moment maybe what Ben shared with you guys last week or even the first two chapters of the Bible have to say about creation itself. Act one, the very first part of this big story. Um, God is the main character of the story. God is the central character. All things revolve around him as the main character. Genesis 1.1 says that in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. That is such a familiar verse for some of us, but take a step back for just a second and think about the way in which this was written. So during this time, the Babylonian creation myth called the Enuma Elish was the main creation account. This is what everybody believed in at the time, right? That there was a plurality of gods that all played certain parts in the creation process. Creation was not born out of breath like it was in, the, in our account. It was born out of chaos. But each of these gods played a certain role in the creation account. So when Moses writes this in this account of Genesis 1, he is saying not gods, not lowercase, but in the beginning, God. There was nothing before him. There was no other helpers along the way beside him. It was simply one true God that out of nothing created everything. Theologians have a phrase that they use for this called ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. So out of nothing, one God creates everything, which makes us copycats a bunch of plagiarists. God has a copyright on every single thing in this world. The chairs that were created were designed by materials in which God has put on this earth and then given a brain to architect how this chair can be sat in, that you sit there right now and hear me talk with the muscles in my mouth and my tongue working to land on your brain, to be able to process down to your heart. All God, all God, anything that I would take pride in or you would take pride in and pound our chest and say, look at what I did is silly because we're simply borrowing from a God who creates out of nothing. I love what the psalmist says. This is actually the words of God being spoken for every beast 
of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. I love this part. And if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Paul begins to reflect on the reality of the God that he worships in Colossians 1, and he just busts out in the song. He just begins to sing this song in Colossians 1.16. He says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God creates it all, and then God deserves all the credit and all the glory. Abraham Kuyper, a 19th century theologian from Amsterdam, says this. This is one of my favorite quotes. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all does not cry, mine. God is large and in charge, and he owns it all, and he deserves all the glory. And I don't want to pick on us too much, but when we say things like, I invited God into my life, I accepted him, I know what we're trying to say. But I think the reality of it is my cold, hard heart that is dense and doesn't understand things has finally come to the realization that God deserves credit for everything, that he is a God that is worthy to be worshiped. And I've finally come to that understanding by his grace. God is not a side dish. God is the main dish. God is the main character. God deserves credit where credit is due. But this God also is a good God. He is a God that when he creates and before we try to hijack him as the main character, people that he is with are flourishing. Adam and Eve hadn't had a fight in their life. They were in their first year of marriage. You ever notice that? Not one single fight. They were doing great. That's crazy. They're doing great. God and man are dwelling together in harmony. They're naked. They're unashamed. The ground that Adam is called to cultivate and work with is working for him. Imagine going to work and just feeling like everything is working for you. It's working together in harmony because God is a good God. He wants good things to happen. That is his plan. The Garden of Eden was filled with inexpressible joy. There's actually an Old Testament word or an Old Covenant word, um, shalom, which is the vibe that you would get if you were in the Garden of Eden. And really the way that we can define that is peace, but peace in a sense of wholeness. Like you felt whole. You knew who you were. You were unashamed of who you were. And you just sat in that. You were complete because he's a good God and that's the way in which he creates. We have two quick chapters of this beautiful world that we see. And out of 1,189 chapters, it's over just like that after two. 
Genesis 2.9, we see that God has put this mysterious tree in the middle of this beautiful garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's the one command he gives Adam and Eve. He says, don't eat from this tree. Just don't eat from this tree. Uh, and that's it. And a serpent comes on to the scene and begins to tempt the woman to eat the fruit from the tree. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? And she answers, yeah, he said that and we'll die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that a tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. See, the problem was not like some fairy tale thing where this is a poisonous apple that you can't eat or it wasn't organic or anything like that. The problem was the motivation for which they had to eat the apple, the temptation or eat the fruit, was to be autonomous from God, to be God themselves. Pride was the reason why the fall took place. It's the same thing that hits us on a Sunday afternoon. It's the same temptation we have when we feel like we don't need God in our lives, when we feel like our identity can be found in who we are rather than who he is. The problem is God was a good God who deserved all credit. The temptation was you can be God. Take the credit yourselves. We see a world that was so perfect without death and sickness and relational brokenness. It's hard for us to even comprehend that because we're, I mean, just listening to the stories even today and the things that we're praying about, I mean, we're just plagued with brokenness. It's like a, we have a rubber band ball at our house. You know, you take the rubber bands off and it's just so intertwined and tangled up. And that's kind of what sin is like in this world. That's what brokenness is like in this world. It just goes so deep into our own lives that we don't even, can't even imagine or comprehend what a world would look like, like the Garden of Eden. It's so far and distant. But that's what happened as soon as they begin to push God aside as the main character and try to step in to this story as the main character themselves. And almost as a direct result, one of the first things we see is shame takes place. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They covered up their shame with something that would not suffice. They covered up their shame out of their own strength. They were standing in front of each other naked at one point, happy, content, and now all of a sudden they're aware of how they fall short. Now all of a sudden, they're devastated by this reality that they're not complete. They're not enough. They were trying to be autonomous. They got it, and they realized they don't do very well when they're in the God chair. And then God begins to look for them, and they hide from him. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, 
in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The God who created them had this perfect relationship with them, begins to seek out and look for them, and they hide. I'll just ask you this. Do you ever feel shame in the presence of God? Maybe even today as we're singing these songs and we're gathered together, maybe there's things in your life that you think if the body of Christ really knew what was going on, it wouldn't be good. Or maybe you just feel a, a waywardness toward God because he's God. And if he knows all things, that's kind of a scary thing. And so you feel yourself dodging and avoiding who he is. We're still feeling the same things that Adam and Eve were feeling when they attempted to be the main character in this play, this true play. We also see this as a direct result of the fall, broken relationships. Adam went from seeing Eve and singing the very first song ever recorded in the Bible, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, to now all of a sudden he's exploiting her, he's blaming her. When God comes and seeks him out and says, why did you eat from the fruit? He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Because of their sin, God also curses their relationship. We see in verse 16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. To this day, we see marriage is really hard. Relationships are really hard. And beyond that, beyond marriage, we see so much brokenness. We see abuse. We see arguments. We see violence in our world. We see war. We see trafficking. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on of this very relevant curse that we, in this broken world, sit under today. And then God curses the ground that which Adam was once made to cultivate. This ground in which was meant to work and they were to flourish in it. He was able to see the fruit of his labor and the labor was sweet. It wasn't hard. All of a sudden, thorns and thistles and the ground begins to work against him. Have you ever heard of someone who's had a job before and loved every second of it even though they tell you you can find a job like that, we all know it's not true. Work is hard. When I tell people, young men, getting married, young women, hey, listen, get a job, you're graduating college, they roll their eyes, I don't want to work, you know, I don't want to do this, but honestly, work can be very hard. Work can feel like the curse, but before the curse ever happened, work existed. God loves work. God gives us purpose in our work. But now work is working against them. Work is working against them. We don't work to reveal the glory of God to bear his image. We work to gain, greed, to gain money. We work with a greed in our hearts. And then in all of this, the things that, we, that were meant to serve us and be under our rule, become the things that we serve in idolatry. 
I know this is a depressing sermon. We're going to get a little better, I promise, okay? We've got to dive deep into this. But the things in which every single one of us, Adam and Eve, born, created in the image of God, have a heart that is made to worship him, a heart that is made to be in union with God and point to him and say, you have created all things and it's good and you deserve the glory for it. And there is a joyous vibe that comes out of that. There is a shalom that we feel in that. But then when they attempt to remove God as the main character, their hearts are still longing to worship. Our hearts are still longing to worship. And so what we do is we take created things and we put it in the place of God and we become slaves to those things that never satisfy us. I wear shoes that look like I raided a 13-year-old's closet. I love Jordans. I grew up with Michael Jordan. I've got a 13-year-old son, and we wear the same shoes, I'm unashamed to say. But I'm so amazed by his friends in school who are so afraid to get creases on their shoes that they walk around like this in the hall. Any junior high teachers in here have been around, have junior high kids, you, maybe you've seen this, but they're all walking around. One of his friends was practicing basketball, didn't want to crease his shoes, and pulled a hammy because he was running all awkwardly. You talk about a moment where the shoes are there to serve your feet, to help you perform and do something, but that becomes the idol in your life, and now you're serving the shoes. And it ends in slavery, a job that is meant to provide for your family becomes this form of identity for you and you become a workaholic and you can never stop working because everything that you are doing reflects on your very being and who you are. Sex meant to bring intimacy in marriage now becomes this thing that you cannot get enough of and you only want to take more and more of. Idolatry is riddled in our hearts because we have worshiping hearts. And this is exactly what happens in the Garden of Eden. From the small inconveniences in our daily lives to the life-altering tragedy, there is a brokenness that haunts our lives and it must be resolved. But by God's grace, the story does not end there. I love the impatience of God to come and help us, to come and rescue us out of the mess that we have created. He doesn't even get out of chapter 3 before he starts giving us glimmers of hope. He doesn't even let us have a whole chapter to sit in the brokenness and the rebellion of what we have done in trying to hijack his story before he steps in and just begins to pour mercy out in giving us glimpses of hope as a good and loving and pursuing father. There's two things that we see. The first thing, the first great picture of hope is that he pursues them as they're running from him in their shame. And when he finds them, it says in Genesis 3.21, that he clothes them with animal skin, knowing it's not going to be enough, they need more, but he is telling them something. You see, when a father 
had a son, and the son was losing his inheritance, he would disrobe him. He would remove his clothes as if to show him, you no longer get this inheritance. But when a father puts a robe on a son, think prodigal son, right? He is telling him, all that I have will be yours. So even in this moment of devastation, conflict, and brokenness, God is clothing his image bearers saying, hey, listen, the game is not over yet. The game is not over. Second thing that he does is he just begins to reveal his impatient mercy on them is when he curses the serpent, he says, that to, he says this to them, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is not a story about how snakes lost their legs. This is not a story. That's not the point. Believe it or not, there are people that really think that's what this is. This is not a story to talk about why women seem to be a little more afraid of snakes than men, okay? For the very first time in the Bible, we see a clear picture of the story of the gospel, the good news of the gospel beginning to come out. Theologians and my seminary professors call this the proto-evangelium. What he's saying here is, out of this woman, way down this line, there's going to be a man that's born, an offspring. And he will be born. And this serpent will strike his heel. Jesus' heel was struck when he hung up on a cross. When all hope seemed lost, when Jesus, naked and ashamed on our behalf, hung up on the cross, all of his disciples scattering, thinking, we've lost this thing, goes into the grave and comes out of the grave on the third day, crushing the serpent's head. The greatest, most memorable day for Satan and the brokenness of this world was simply to nip at the heel of Jesus, only for Jesus to turn around and crush his head. See, God is already giving them hints of what is to come. The blood of Jesus, one day, he's saying, will cover your shame completely. The righteousness of Jesus will clothe you. And the rebellion and the autonomy and the exploitation and the shame and everything else will clothe Jesus on that day. And you will be set free. He will overcome death. He will defeat Satan. He will crush the serpent once and for all, rendering him completely powerless. I read, uh, recently I read a book uh, called The Road, literary masterpiece, unbelievable book. If you read it, just give yourself two weeks to be extremely depressed afterward. But in this story, it's kind of an apocalyptic story without giving you all the details. It's an apocalyptic story about, um, I don't really know what exactly devastated the world, but it's basically just darkness and ash, and they haven't seen the sun for a long time, and there's not very many people left. And it's a father, and his wife is gone, 
and his son, and the son was born post-apocalyptic, after the devastation. And in this story, the father, they're journeying through, just trying to survive, and the father just continues to tell his son and remind him and tell him of what the world looked like before all of this happened. And his son had never seen it. He didn't even have a category for it, but he would just go into detail explaining things and telling him to not lose the fire, don't lose hope. There was something better than what we have right now. And the son's asking questions and trying to believe and trying to have faith in believing it, and it's so difficult. But in this story, Genesis 1 and 2, we are the son. We have not seen what this world was intended to be. We don't have a category for it. We don't know what it's like to have a friend where there's no conflict, a marriage that is in perfect harmony. We don't know what it's like to stand completely naked before the face of God without any shame in our lives. And we are given these chapters in this book to remind us that that will be our reality one day and even better. That you are in a story right now that is so broken and so devastated and all the things, stage four cancer and heart problems and family members that are sick and COVID and all of these things. And then just not even counting the stuff that comes out of us that devastates us. I can't believe I would treat someone that way. I can't believe I would have that much hatred in my heart. These patterns and addictions there will be a day where we will know nothing of that. There will be a day in which Jesus will not even have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden in which we exist, and it will be beautiful. So we're going to take communion together. And so often we highlight in communion the cross, which we should, right? It's the spilled blood of Jesus and his broken body. And we think about something that's already been done. But I want to invite us today, salt and light, as we take communion, to think about what Jesus is currently doing and working in our story. The Genesis 1 and 2 part that will then end in Revelation. That amidst all of the brokenness, that God is in fact good and he is taking you, if you are his, on a trajectory that ends in unimaginable paradise and good for you because he loves you and he's capable of doing it because he's the one, God, with his own voice and his own words that created everything around us. So I'm going to pray and then um, I think everybody has communion elements with you um, and we can we'll pray and we'll just eat drink together so lord we thank you for the goodness amidst the tragedy in the story we thank you for the hope that we see amidst our own rebellion we thank you for the grace that you provide and lord most importantly we thank you that we even in this story so early in the bible you so impatiently and wonderfully begin to give us hints of our full restoration in Jesus. 
Lord, as we take communion today, I pray that you would encourage our hearts that heaven is not a fantasy realm. It is not a Walt Disney story, but it is real as the chairs and the tables that surround us right now. So Lord, would you lift up the spirits of those who are downcast? Would you encourage those who are having a hard time seeing anything good right now? And Lord, for those that maybe are in this room and have continued to pursue autonomy from you, continue to try to drink deeply of finding satisfaction in created things and in their own identity, Lord, would you, by your mercy, disappoint them, grant them a spirit of repentance that they could come to know you. And even as I say that word repentance, I conjure in my mind fire and brimstone, Lord, that they can turn from the direction that is leaving them despairing and turn them toward a place of hope and renewal in you. We thank you, Lord, that we have this great hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.